many of you might um, remember or have known that um, last week, Lorinda and I ended up making a trip up to British Columbia. Um, my brother-in-law passed away from cancer, and so we went up um, for his memorial service and to be with my sister and her her kids, and all of her kids are grown, and they have kids of their own, so they grandkids and all the rest of that. And, um, you know, the good news in all of this, especially for my sister, is she has the promise that Jesus said, even though you die, yet shall you live. That's what we hang our hat on every day. Uh, We're only here on this planet for a short while. Um, If you're lucky, you're going to be here for maybe 80 plus years. Um, you know, but for the rest of us, it might be 72 to 75 years, and then we're gone. And so we, we mourn with my sister, but we're not mourning the loss, because my brother-in-law isn't lost. We know exactly where he is. <laughs> He's in glory with Jesus, and Right now, he doesn't give uh, a rat's tail about what's going on down here because he's in, in the best place ever to be. And so we're very thankful that he had a great relationship with, with Jesus. My sister, on the other hand, she is going to have to do what everybody before her has had to do. You have to go through this mourning process. When your loved one dies, you mourn the loss of your loved one. There's a whole series of steps that you have to go through in the grieving process in order to come out the other end healthy and whole and intact. And so she's going to have to go through it. And so our prayer for her is that she embraces this process that God designed for us to go through. And as she goes through it, the good news is, is that she has her family. Her family is there to support her. They will come around her. They will cry with her. Her daughters, I'm sure, are going to gather in and they'll spend time crying and mourning the loss of dad and father and grandfather. Um, Her church family will embrace her and let her know that she does not walk the path of sorrow by herself. They are there to hold her hand. They are there to give her encouraging words as she goes down this pathway. But she will, as she embraces all of these different avenues, at the end, she is going to come through and she will say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. And yet I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's our hope as believers. And my sister, I am confident she's a woman of God. She loves Jesus with all of her heart. She has a strong faith. And so she will pull through this and she will have a great story to tell and memories to share with other people uh, about her husband, my brother-in-law, Don. Great. The crazy part is I knew Don, my brother-in-law, longer than I've known my wife. But I like her a whole lot better. <laughs> so while we were up in Canada hanging out, we got to connect with a bunch of our friends and some of our oldest friends that we have on this planet, not including our family, but our friends. And um, so one of the couples that we hang around with, they were godparents uh, to our children. So if anything would have happened to us, our children would have 
been shipped off to live with, as they would call them, Uncle Ken and Aunt Shirley. And I think our kids secretly were hoping that mom and dad would die so they could actually go and live with them because, uh, well, they just, they had a lot more means than mom and dad do. And so they were probably hoping kind of secretly, not really, but, you know, they wouldn't mind having mom and dad gone for a summer, let's say, and then have them back. But anyway, so as I was hanging around with, with Ken and Shirley, I was reminded, um, Ken, when, when we first got to know him, he was an avid water skier. And um, when I wrecked my knee and I couldn't work, <laughs> my job for the summer was to drive his boat while he water skied. Uh, while he did barefooting and all the rest of that stuff. And so it seemed like any afternoon he was free, he was picking me up at my house, and I was driving his boat on the river as he would ski. And, and, uh, and so one of the stories that Ken told me, and I can't remember if it was his, a friend of his or a friend of a friend of his that this happened to, but it was somebody he knew. And... Whoever it was, the person that was involved with them owned a boat and would go skiing. And so that particular summer, uh, the guy with the boat would take his friend and his friend's family out to the lake on the weekends to go water skiing, to go um, you know, on the lake with the boat and boating and tubing and all the rest of that stuff. And the kids were little and they were enjoying it. Matter of fact, the guy that was the recipient of this friend's good favor said it was one of the greatest summers that they as a family had because they, they really bonded. The kids were just, you know, teenagers. They were starting to grow out, and, and it kind of brought them back into the family. And so they had this, this great thing going on with the boat. And it was so good that at the end of the boating season, the, the dad decided, I'm going to buy my own boat. And what better time to buy a boat than at the end of the season when the old models, this year's models, are on sale. You can get a really good deal. And so he went and bought a really great ski boat. And he bought all the skis and everything they needed to have to uh, have a great summer the next year. Looking forward to it all winter long. Summer rolls around. He loads up the boat. They load up the the coolers with all the picnic stuff. They get the kids in and everybody in, and they go down to the lake, and he takes his truck, and, and he backs up the boat, and he drops the boat off into the water. He goes and parks his truck. He gets in, and he idles the boat away from the dock in reverse, and there's a little area there where you can't really go fast, like five miles an hour is all you can go with your boat to get away from the swimmers that might be around the dock. And then once you get past that, there's the open lake, and he took the throttle, and he was going like, hang on, kids, this is going to be great. And he put the throttle down, and the motor roared, and the boat went, mm, just barely five miles an hour, just putzing along. And he's like, there's something wrong with my boat. So he put it in neutral, and he kind of checked around and looked at it and made sure he was doing everything right. He, he had everything right. He put it in reverse, and he backed it up a little bit, and he put it back in neutral, and then he inched it forward a little bit, put the throttle all the way down again, and the same thing. The boat made all the noise it could make, but it went nowhere. So he thought, the marina that I bought it from is just across the lake. So he limped his boat 
over to the marina dock. And as he pulled up, the owner of the marina who sold him the boat, he came and saw him. So he came down and goes, hey, man, how do you like your boat? And he says, it sucks right now. And he says, what's the problem? He says, I don't know. He says, I put the throttle down and I barely move in the water. There's something wrong. He says, I don't know if the prop is loose. Maybe the prop's on backwards when you sold it to me. Maybe you guys put the prop on backwards. But there's something definitely wrong. I have all the power in the world, but I go nowhere. And so he's like, well, maybe let me check this out. So he got one of his mechanics and the guys that works on boats to put on a diver's mask. And he came to the dock, and he jumped in the water to take a look at the prop. And as soon as he hit the water, it's like he almost came out of the water as fast as he hit the water. He pulled the mask off, and he was spitting water, laughing so hard he could hardly contain himself. He, he was, finally, he was able to get his composure, and he said, the reason why the boat isn't moving is because the trailer is still attached to the boat. <laughs> Now, we all think that's really stupid. What kind of an idiot would do something like that? Well, we all would. Maybe not on a physical boat, but on a spiritual boat. You see, what God has given to us when we've come into relationship with Jesus, God has given us everything we need to live by his word, in the power and might of his being, his dwelling in us, we have everything we need to, to be powerful in an, and effective as Christ's followers. And yet, most of the time, our lives aren't zipping around with the power and effectiveness that God has supplied for us. We're lagging around as though we have a trailer attached to our boat. And spiritually speaking, we've got the the throttle all the way down and it's making a lot of noise, but we're going nowhere fast. And that's what happens to us, spiritually speaking. When we're not in tune, when we're not in line with what God wants us to do. And a lot of times, the place where we feel like we've got a trailer attached to our spiritual boat is in the whole area of prayer. We, we, we read what God's Word says about prayer. We look at how Jesus prayed. We look at the prayer that Jesus gave as a model to His disciples. We understand in John chapter 17 this magnificent prayer that, that is recorded, recorded about Jesus praying for us, praying for the disciples, praying for the growth of the church. And we look at all these different things and we look at the people in the New Testament We read the book of Acts and we see wonders and signs and miracles and we see people coming to Christ all the time and we look at marriages that have been rescued. We look at lives that have been transformed. We look at all the things that take place in the New Testament and we look at our lives and we go, why is it that what I read and see in the Bible doesn't match my life? Why isn't my life like those people in the Bible? Why do I feel like I'm making a lot of noise but going nowhere? This isn't an uncommon thing. It it is actually a pretty common thing that's going on within churches across the United States right now. In North America, there's a lot of noise that's being made 
but there's not a lot of traction and a lot of things that are happening spiritually within the lives of the people who are calling themselves Christ followers. And so sometimes we get a little bit discouraged. We get a little bit worn out. We, we start to wonder, what does it take for me to have a life like even some people who aren't that far behind us? Like if you just even think about guys like Billy Graham, for instance. That man's life had a lot of traction to it. That guy, he didn't make a lot of noise. He went places. And he was doing things with power under the influence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And we look at guys like Billy Graham. We look at guys like maybe uh, Charles Stanley or Andy Stanley. We look at guys who we would call maybe the pillars of faith. And we look at them and we go, why is my life not like their life? What is different about their relationship with God than my relationship with God? Is there something that I'm missing? You know, the, the great thing is, is that in all of this, there's, there's a thing that Jesus put together. We call it the church. And when Jesus was pro- preparing the 12 disciples for what they were going to do, the task that they had, he spent three years teaching them all kinds of important doctrinal, biblical, theological issues that were going to influence not just their lives, but the way that they took what they knew about Jesus and, and, and took it to the nations. They put this whole thing together. The Trinity, Jesus came as the Son of God, who his whole purpose was to bring glory to God the Father by going to the cross, suffering on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, being buried, and on the third day, raising from the, from the grave, because it's the resurrection that, that justified and brought the cross, the power that it has to forgive sins and, and bring us into a right standing with the Father. That was what the Son did. God devised the plan. The Son, Jesus, He enabled it and, and worked the plan out. And then Jesus said, the good news is I'm going to leave you now. I've done my work. I'm going off to heaven, and I'm going to go sit at, the, at my Father's right hand in heaven. And I'm going to wait for him to give me the word, because when he gives me the word, I'm going to come back to earth, and I'm going to gather every person who has ever put their faith in me. I'm going to gather them around me, and we are going to settle accounts. We are going to make all things right. That's what we're going to do. And he said, but. I have to go in order for that to happen. Because when I go, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send another helper, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. And so, it would only happen, though, that we'd have the Holy Spirit if Jesus went back to heaven. He had to go. He had to go in order for the Holy Spirit to come. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, it, in order for the Helper, the Holy Spirit to come and, and have a ministry in our lives and help the church to go where the church needed to go, Jesus had to go away in order for the Helper to come. 
And then Jesus said, in, in also in John chapter 15, he said, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, whom proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So all of a sudden, not only do we have the Helper, the Holy Spirit, coming to help us, but he's going to bear witness to the fact that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he has done what he said he was going to do. And we know that because the Holy Spirit tells us in our spirit that that's what God has done. And that's where our hope is. It's all in Jesus and what the Spirit is telling us. And then in John chapter 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you see, the helper is going to do other things. When you read the word of God, the helper is going to help you to understand what the word of God is saying for your life. It's not just that you're reading words and you're going like, wow, that was really a cool saying. I think I'll put it on my Facebook page. That's not what he wants. What he wants is when you read the word of God, you go like, wow, I didn't know that. And all of a sudden you're going, now how do I take what I just read there and apply it to my life so that I become a person that God intended for me to become? And that's called the application. And the Holy Spirit will help you with application as well. And so we've got the helper who's there to do all these things. And again in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Think about that. You will have the Holy Spirit forever. It's not like the forever that we think about. It's not like the forever that we, we, we put down, you know, BFF, best friends forever, right? Because that forever, that usually lasts about two or three weeks. And then that BFF is gone and you've got a new BFF because you probably got a BF to take the place of your BFF. Right? That's the way it rolls. I know. Been there. The Holy Spirit's our helper. He helps us when we're being tempted. Do you know how he helps us when we're being tempted? He's tapping us on the shoulder, and he's pointing over here because there's this little sign that says exit, spiritual exit. So when you're tempted to step into sin, the Holy Spirit's going like, don't do that, don't do that, no. Hey, don't take that path. Turn left here. It's like the navigation on your car. Make a left at the next intersection. And that's what the Holy Spirit says. But sometimes we go like, no, don't want to do that. I like, I kind of like where this path has taken me. And the Holy Spirit says, that is going to lead to a bad place for you if you continue down that path. So stop it. Take a left. Take a right. He provides an exit plan. That's how he helps us with temptation. The other thing he helps us with is in our weakness. We have weaknesses. And sometimes we, we get to a place where we're not even really sure how we should pray or what we should pray. And in those weak moments, the Holy Spirit helps us to know what we should pray for. And he will pray for us. I'll give that to you in a minute. The Holy Spirit gives, helps us by giving us gifts, spiritual gifts. If you are a Christ follower, whether you are 12 or you are 82. The Holy Spirit has given you a gift or multitude of gifts that you are to use 
in the body of Christ for helping the church to grow. He wants you to use what he has given you. So your responsibility is to determine which of the gifts he has given to you and then to step into those gifts and use them for the body of Christ. That's how he helps us. And he'll help you to develop that gift as well. He helps us by convicting us of our sin. Just because you're a Christ follower doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. Matter of fact, we probably can barely make it through two or three hours without having some kind of a sinful thought race through our mind, and he will convict us. That's all of a sudden, you know, you've had that sinful thought because you just thought, why was I just thinking that? That's the Holy Spirit saying to you, knock it off, dude. Change your thought pattern right now. Think about things that are lovely, noble. Think about things that are grand. Think about the things of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do, and that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. These are the things that he helps us with. He helps us with repentance. He gives us wisdom when we ask for it. And these are just a few of the things that the Holy Spirit does as a helper. In Romans 8, 26, uh, Paul wrote this and said, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me, let me give you two things on that. That should be a comfort for you because um, there may be times when you start to pray and you go like, God, I don't, even, I don't even know what or how to pray right now. I just don't even know what to say. And the Holy Spirit will come and he'll do two things. He'll start to pray for you and pray with you in, in a groanings that you would not even be able to put words to. So that's the good thing. On the back side of that coin, don't let it become now your default thing where you're going like, well, I really don't need to pray because I've got the Holy Spirit praying for me in deep groanings too, you know, so I'm kind of off the hook on prayer. That's not what, what the apostle is telling us. God really does want us to be powerful and effective in our prayers because when we are, when we are powerful and effective in our prayers, lives are changed. Marriages are transformed. Our finances take a different look. Um, we are set free from habitual sin. The church, she becomes single-minded on the things that God wants her to do. The entire community around us has a spiritual renovation because we have decided to be intentional about the prayer that God has given to us. But this only takes place as people gather together with a purpose to see God do what only God can do. And you know what God is, only can do what he can do? You know what that is? It's amazing things. I was just telling Phil this morning, just before the service, we were having a little prayer time in my office, that we have taken words and we have given them new meanings. And you can think of a whole bunch of words that don't mean what they used to mean. But let me give you one that I think we have taken and we've given a, a meaning to it that should never have been given to it. The word awful. When I say awful, most people think of something really bad and horrible that's just taken place. But that's not what that word originally was intended to mean. It was in, in connection to our relationship with God because we worship an awful God. In other words, a God 
filled with awe. Oh. So you can go to your neighbor and just go like, we're in church and God is awful. And they'll go, huh? And it'll be the beginning of a conversation that you can have with your friends to describe the awe-filled moments of God in your life. Use that word. Change the meaning back to what it's supposed to be. Okay? Okay? Get on board. Come on, because I'm not leaving until you do. Um, you know, all these things will happen. All the, the transformation, the changes in lives, the marriage is saved, the freedom from sexual habitual sins, all that stuff only takes place when we start to come and we do what Christ told us to do, and that's to be intentional. We, we don't live haphazardly. We live with intention and with purpose. That's why Jesus, when he uh, established the definition of church, he called it the ecclesia. And the ecclesia, that word, it means a gathering of people united by a common identity and purpose. As the church comes together and is intentional about bringing our community, our families, our marriages, our businesses, our kids' education, our jobs, our ministries, and the list could keep going on. As we continue to bring those things to God in prayer, it's what will change the things that we need changed. If you don't like the way the education system and the way the school board is functioning in this town, you can go down there and complain all you want to, and you will get little if any movement from the school board. But I can tell you with all certainty that if a group of parents said, we're going to get together and we're going to start praying that the school board starts to change their policies that fit our children's needs better than fitting our culture's needs, that you will see a school board who is moved by the hand of God, not by the voices of complainers. That only comes when you come to the place where you want to pray. The point is that God is looking for us to be a, become single-minded about having Him do only what He can do, and that is to, tra- is to bring transformation to every aspect of our lives. But He won't do it until He knows we're serious about asking Him for the transformation. I want you to think in the term of human relationships. If your child came to you and said, hey, mom, dad, I want to buy a really expensive mountain bike. And you'd go like, okay. When you say expensive, what do you mean? I mean it's going to cost five grand. You'd go like, you could buy a car for five grand. And your kid would respond, but you can't drive your car up to the falls. I can take a mountain bike up to the falls. You'd go like, okay. So then... You'd go like, and then they'd say, but I want you to help me. And you'd go, all right, sure. And then you wait to see how serious your child is about it. Because all of a sudden, they've got a little job, and they're earning some money. And then all of a sudden, their friends go like, hey, let's go down to Casper. And your child takes all of the money that they've been saving for the mountain bike, and they go off to Casper, 
and they come back with a truckload of clothes. And you go like, not that serious about the mountain bike. And the child's going, hey, I'd really like you to help me out with the mountain bike. And you go like, I don't think you're serious about getting a mountain bike. Why not? Because you just spent all the money you had saved up for the mountain bike. Yeah, but it was a really good deal. I saved tons of money by buying these clothes on sale. Whoop-dee-doo. It's not a mountain bike. All of a sudden, the kid is within $500 of getting a mountain bike. And you're going, you know what? You've been working hard. You've been saving your money. You've been... You've been studying up on the mountain bike. You know all the aspects of all the great things about this mountain bike. And guess what? Because you have been so diligent and you have been serious about what you're wanting to do, let me cover the rest of that and get you what you wanted to have. And your child's going to go like, wow. But you see, that's kind of in a very weak way, the way that God works. We can say all kinds of things to God in passing. But until we get serious about it and we come and we start making concerted, intentional effort in prayer on behalf of whatever it is we need people to do or we need God to do that only God can do, nothing is going to happen. It's not going to happen until God sees how intentional and serious we are about it. Jesus told us that we would have the very presence of God to help us to accomplish the tasks of making disciples. The only thing he says is that we're to draw upon his power in order to do it. When, when he told the disciples to go make disciples, right? That's the last thing he said before he sent it into heaven. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I want you to teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Those are the things that Jesus said for them to do. And then he said, told them that there's, they're supposed to, you know, in Acts 1.8, Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. When Jesus ascended into heaven and the church was birthed, it was a group of people who came together in anticipation that the Holy Spirit was going to descend upon them in power and give them everything they needed to do to accomplish the task that Jesus had just laid out before them for them to do. Do you know what they did in order to do that? They got themselves together and they started to pray. In Acts 1, 14 to 15, it says, All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. We don't quite have 120 here this morning. But you understand this. I want you to get the picture of this. Here are people who have jobs and families that they need to be connected with. They have all these things going on all around them that will make their life busy. You've got fishermen who could go fishing. You've got tent makers who should be making tents. You've got tax collectors who could be collecting taxes. You've got people doing all kind, that could be doing all kinds of things. 
But when Jesus said, I don't want you to relieve Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, they gathered together, probably in a room a little bit smaller than this one, 120 of them, and they spent that time praying. They were anticipating what was going to happen. It was upon the instructions from Jesus that these disciples gathered together in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to prayer. They didn't get together to sing a bunch of songs. They didn't get together to read the Bible and to study what the Holy Spirit was about. They didn't get together and put strategies together on how they were going to bring the good news, the gospel to Jerusalem and then move it on out into the world. All they did was pray, and they were devoted to prayer. That means they were zealous, enthusiastic, fanatic, fervent, and faithful to making prayer their priority as they waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. At the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we know that's where it's recorded that the Holy Spirit came upon the church. 120 of them in a room, in a prayer meeting. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. It came with such force and with such power that it sounded like a tornado ripping the house apart. It shook the house. And all of a sudden, all these men and women who are in this prayer meeting, they're looking at each other and they're seeing a little tongue of fire over their head. And the the Spirit manifested Himself because now they started to proclaim the wonders of Jesus, not in unknown languages, but in the languages, nine different languages of people who were in Jerusalem. And it made such a ruckus that thousands of people, thousands of people gathered around this house to see what was going on, why there was such a wind, and yet the house didn't fall. And all of a sudden they heard the glories of God being proclaimed in their mother language, and they were all astounded. And then Peter got up under the power of the Holy Spirit. You know Peter, the guy that sticks his foot in his mouth before he does anything else. He says the stupid things that gets him in trouble. He does stupid things. That's the same Peter that now stands up. He delivers the first message by the church And at the end of the message, the people say, what should we do? And he said, repent of your sins, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and be baptized. And 3,000, 3,000 came to faith that day and were baptized. Why? It's because they spent time in prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then we have this magnificent event that takes place. And I'm not convinced that that was a one-and-done kind of thing with the Holy Spirit. I think that that's supposed to be the norm of the church. I think that the church, when she gathers together in concentrated effort, intentionally praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the church, that the church will open her mouth and people will get saved. Unfortunately, What we have, and I'm not saying here, I'm saying collectively across the United States and North America, what we have is people who want to gather together to have a 
sermon preached to them so they feel good about life and they can go out and say, wasn't that great? And then go about their life as though God doesn't even exist. Later on in the second chapter of Acts, after this magnificent move of the Holy Spirit and people coming to faith, all these Christians, all these Christ followers now, it says in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And get this, and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And here it is. Here's the end result of what happened because the church got together and did these things. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't you want to be an Acts 2 church? I mean, don't you really? Don't you want to see, wouldn't it be, what would we do if every day you brought someone to the church at the end of the day and say, hey, Pastor Ken, I'd like you to meet Billy Bob over here. Billy Bob and I were just having a conversation and I introduced him to Jesus. He's confessed his sin and he proclaims Jesus as Lord and Savior of his life. What do we do? Well, we need to baptize Billy Bob. That's what we need to do. And then somebody else walks through the door. And somebody else walks through the door. And every single day, somebody is coming to faith in Christ. Guess what? We wouldn't have enough room in the church to hold them. We'd be having multiple worship services. And people would still be getting saved. And people would be getting baptized. And we would be commissioning people to start teaching the Bible in their own homes. And the thing would explode. And this town of Lander would be absolutely transformed. And what would happen in Lander would then sweep through the entire reservation. And it would wash over Riverton. And the entire county, Fremont County of, of Wyoming would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit through his people. That's what it would look like for us to be an Acts 2 church. The church that decides that we are going to come together and we are going to get on our knees and we are going to be intentional about bringing the gospel of Jesus to other people. But it only happens as people come together and they start to pray. It's, it's an obvious thing here in Acts chapter 2 that the church was experiencing a great work of the Holy Spirit both in and among the church as the disciples were in the community and people were coming to faith daily. But here's what happens when, when the movement of God starts to take place. People sit up and take notice and there are people who are not going to be happy about it. 
People who are not going to get in line with Jesus. And the, and the religious leaders absolutely were fearful because now there's all of these people who have come to faith in Christ. We're talking about thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem are now walking in what they called the way, the, the, new, the new thing with Jesus, this Jesus that they tried to kill, this whole thing of, of the Messiah that they were trying to quote and destroy so it would never raise its head again. It not only raised its head, but now it was steamrolling through Jerusalem. And the religious leaders, they were fearful. They were afraid of what was going to happen because not only was that happening, but now people were being healed and the blind were given sight and there were miracles taking place and there was all this stuff going on and the religious leaders are going like, if we don't stop this train soon, it's going to run us over and leave us behind and then we will be nothing. And so they grabbed John and they grabbed Peter and they hauled them in before the Sanhedrin, the religious leading group, and they grilled them for hours and they kept telling them that what you're doing is against the law of God. And the response of John and Peter was, we will obey the Holy Spirit, not man. And so we will continue to preach the word of God. We will continue to preach Jesus. And they were warned strongly that if you do, the next time we haul you in here, it's not going to be just the tongue lashing you get. You're going to get a lashing of, of whips. So what do you think Peter and John did? Do they do like the church of today? Oh no. What do we do? They're after us. They're trying to kick us out. They're trying to squelch us. Oh, we need, we need to start praying for a better government. We need to start praying for more religious or, or Christians to be serving in government. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. That's not what John and Peter did. They went back and they told the church everything that happened and they rejoiced. They were happy. Look, we're making enough noise here about Jesus to where people are sitting up and taking notice and they're going to tell us to knock it off or we're going to get it. And, and then it says, after they rejoiced, that this is what they did, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and get this, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what happens. Could you imagine us coming together, having a prayer time right here in this building, having it shake, people in town would go, we told them not to buy that building, it was a piece of junk. It's going to fall down around their ears. That's what they said. But when God shakes a building, it just strengthens the building. And then what happens is, we walk out of there with a new boldness in our heart. We're no longer afraid of political correctness. We're no longer afraid to say that this is what the Bible says. This is what the Word of God says. And God calls us to repent. And we would see people's lives and transformed and changed and the gospel making its way through the hearts and lives of men and women. That's what would happen. The great thing is what the church wasn't doing at that moment. They weren't praying for new ideas. They weren't praying for government or religious reformation. They were, all they did was pray for boldness. And it was because of the Holy Spirit gave them boldness to speak that the mystery of Jesus was extended throughout the world. If you continue to read on through the book, 
of Acts, you will find in various places something that sounds like this. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Prayer, the word of God, equals more disciples. It's the formula that is laid out for us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, there's this this amazing story that takes place because the religious leaders, they didn't sit back and take this lightly. All of a sudden, they're going to start persecuting the church and they kind of had the, the approval of the Roman government to go after these new religious people. And so they commissioned this one guy whose name is, was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul became a zealot for persecuting the church. And he took off to persecute the entire church. And he was on his way to Damascus. And it's on the Damascus road that Jesus himself manifested his presence, brought Saul to the ground, blinded him, and said, I don't want you to persecute the church anymore. I want you to take the church to the next level. And Paul, Saul became Paul. There was the transformation that Jesus brought into his life. But the part that's really great is what happened right behind that. We read that, and sometimes you kind of miss it if you get going too fast. Because in Acts 9.39, in that part of it, it switches and it's talking about Peter and his ministry to the Gentiles. And he gets word that one of the disciples falls into sleep or death. Her name was Tabitha. Her nickname is Dorcas. Not the name you want to name your child. Wow. Hey, Dorcas, honey. Not good, Tabitha. So Tabitha, she's, she, she dies. And Paul... Peter is in the next city, real close by, probably closer than from here to to Hudson. And so they send word to Peter and they go like, hey, one of our disciples, one of the disciples of Jesus died. It's kind of like, yeah, well, what's the big deal? I mean, they're going to die all the time. I mean, they die. That's not a bad thing. You go to heaven. You get to be with Jesus. You're done with this. But they said, please come and help, Peter. Peter's going like, okay. So he gets over there, and he goes into the upper room. Here's what it says in in 39 and 40. Let me read it to you. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and here it is, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. I'm not sure that Peter really knew what he was going to do when he went to Joppa. He's going over to Joppa, and he's going like, okay, I'll but I think this is you know, the gospel according to Ken. I think when he walked in and he saw the ministry that Tabitha had with the widows and the poor and how she was ministering to them. She was the hands and the feet 
of Jesus to these poor people. And she had such a great ministry to them. And she had a great ministry, not just in the church, but in the entire community. She had this magnificent ministry going on. And when Peter looked at her on, the, on this table, lying there dead, and he looked at everybody in the room who was weeping because of the, the loss of this great follower of Christ, he said, you guys leave. And then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And here's the craziest part. We have no clue what he prayed specifically. We don't know. But we have a good idea that it had to do with a dead woman and coming back to life. We don't know how long he prayed. He could have been praying for an hour. He could have been praying for 15 minutes. But we do know that what he did is he went to prayer before he did anything else. And when he was done praying, he looked at her and he said, Tabitha, arise. And she came back to life in a heartbeat and she went back to ministering in the church. Do you know what happened to Tabitha? She died again. She did. She died and she went to heaven for good. But God sent her back to complete the ministry that she had in the church. All because why? Peter prayed. Now, I also have a theory that I take from Scripture. Whenever there is signs and wonders, miracles and healings taking place. Jesus doesn't do those things just for the sake of doing them. He's not going like, um, I'm going to make this person walk. I'm going to make this person to see. I'm, I'm going to do all these things around you just because, well, shoot, I get a kick out of it and it's just fun to do. He has a purpose behind every one of those things. And I'm going to read to you what happened after Tabitha came back to life in verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa. What became known? That Tabitha came back to life in the church. In the church, this miraculous resurrection, back to life event took place. She was raised back to life. And all of Joppa... All, when it says all, Joppa, it doesn't mean like a couple subdivisions in Joppa. It means the whole town. Everybody knew what had just happened. And many believed in the Lord. That's the end result of miracles and healings. The people come to faith in Christ. God doesn't do a miracle just for the sake of doing a miracle. He does a miracle in order to point an unbelieving heart to the reality of who Jesus is. So let me finish up with this. Because I want to see people healed. I want to see marriages made whole. I want to see blind. I I want the blind to see. I want families restored. I want to see the manifest presence of Jesus come every time we gather together, no matter where we gather together. I want to see people released from the burden of sin. I want people to find freedom. More than that, I want to see lives transformed by the power of Jesus at work in them. 
I want people to be rescued from the path of destruction and to come to faith in Jesus. If we're looking for signs and wonders and if we're wanting to experience healings, then I believe that every time that those things take place, we need to see an abundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the manifest presence of Jesus showing up so that people's lives are transformed and they come to a saving knowledge of of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to see. I want to see people's lives transformed by Jesus. I want us to be intentional about prayer and make it a priority. So if your life seems to be falling apart around you, if you feel like your spiritual life is dying on the vine, if you see your family drifting away from the foundations of Jesus, if you are tired of reading God's word and seeing little or no effect on your life, then it's time for you to join others in prayer and put a stop to that nonsense in your life and to enact the power and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit through prayer in your life. In other words, it's time to detach the trailer from the speedboat and let it rip across the waters. Let it do what God intended for your life to do. Let it be filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Let your life so shine in dark places that people come to know Jesus Christ. I want to see people come to know Christ. And guess what? It's not my job. It's our job. We come together. We pray. We see lives transformed. And we celebrate. And we do it again the next day. Again, John chapter 14. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you and in you. What's strapped to the bottom of your spiritual boat that's holding you back from living the full potential of a powerful and effective prayer life? Whatever it is, it's just a prayer away. You say, God, release me, and you will take off. Amen? Our Father, we thank you that you have given to us everything we need to be powerful and effective in our lives, in our ministries. You have called us out of darkness into light. You have given us everything that it takes for us to reach into this world and to see it transformed, to see many lives come to a saving faith in Jesus. And I pray that you would stir in each of our hearts, that you would move us deeply into a place of knowing you, and communing with you, and seeing you work in and through us, and that people, because of your work in our lives, people's lives will be rescued from the path of destruction and put on the path of righteousness. Do your work in our hearts, we pray today, in Jesus' great name. Amen.